you know, sometimes I was thinking, like, why? What does a guy from Berkeley College Music, you know, have to say to a bunch of, of y'all students that go to all these other different schools? And I certainly knew when I was a Berkeley student that there was a lot of inferiority complex <laughs> about being a Berkeley student. But then a friend of mine, Glenn Hoberg, who went to Berkeley College Music with me, started the RUF ministry at Harvard. And I remember thinking, what in the world were they doing sending him there? But you know, being a musician has a lot of similarities to being an overachiever. And uh, you know, I work at Belmont University, okay, and I find it's really interesting, like athletes, musicians, and now virtually every college student um, doesn't know how to rest. Uh, David Brooks, who's a columnist for the New York Times, uh, wrote a book called Bobos in Paradise. Anybody read that book? No? Nobody really reads it as much anymore. A couple of the campus ministers have. Well, he talks in that book about how our society really has changed, and a lot of it had to do with when the colleges, especially the ones up here in the Northeast, some of the more influential ones, began to change the basis upon which they accepted students into their college. They went from family connections and the fact that one of your family members was an alumni being the, the chief way that you got into some of the more prestigious schools, to basing it on your SAT scores and your grades and your resume. And he says that that's had a, really a tetonic shift in our culture and has produced in a lot of ways what he describes as a meritocracy, where life is a continual aptitude test. And you never quite know if you're going to be able to pass from day to day. So, you know, the guys asked me if I would speak on sanctification. How do we grow more like Jesus? And the, the tack I want to take on this is that it has everything to do with your fear and with your worship. And we may not generally consider that as being the most important way to think about growing in Christ-likeness or growing to be more like a Christian. If you're not a Christian here, I hope this will be helpful to you to think, well, gosh, if I buy into this whole Christianity thing, if I want to follow Jesus... Um, what is the goal? What, what's the end? What am, I, what am I getting into here? And so sanctification is relevant in that. But if you're, if you're a Christian, somebody who's uh, been trying to follow Jesus, my suspicion is that you, do, you don't really understand how much your fear has to do with the issues that you struggle with. And there are so many, so many things that I could say about this, but I wanted to start with a passage that for me has, has been a very, very helpful passage over the years. It's from the book of Isaiah. Now, you know, it, depending on where you're at, see, here's the thing. Every one of us comes into this world broken, afraid, but in some ways our stories, our influences, our families, the experiences that we've had, goes a long way towards shaping our fear doesn't produce our fear. It doesn't produce or cause our commitment to take care of ourselves, but it certainly shapes it. And if you're somebody from a more traditional culture, you know, the great fear in that setting is to disappoint important people. Maybe your family or, you know, other sort of cultural people. I, I live next door both sides of where I live in Nashville, both of my neighbors on both sides are Kurdish, right? So I, I kind of see this most every day. It's just fascinating. The kinds of things that the kids who grew up in those families, 
they're all refugees from Iraq, right? There's like 5,000 Kurdish refugees in Nashville. We actually had Iraqi elections in Nashville, Tennessee. My next door neighbor is now a senator in Baghdad, right? She's like the sixth you know, person in the Kurdish line of power. What a weird world we live in, uh, you know, Nashville, Tennessee. But, you know, but the, but the kids there, the kids there are terrified, wouldn't think of disappointing their parents. But the kids I work with at Belmont, the students I work with, they don't really care very much about that at all. The thing that they're really worried about is they might find that they haven't made the most of all they could be. They're so desperately afraid that they might miss out on some experience. And so they can't really commit to anything because to commit to something means you might miss out on something else. Therefore, they miss out on really everything, at least in any kind of real depth. So what are you afraid of tonight? What do you, what do you know about rest? This is a retreat. Actually, I, I used to be part of a youth ministry where we didn't have retreats. We always called them advances. <laughs> because in some ways, it's sort of unnatural to sort of think that Christians should sort of pull themselves away from real life, or even that worship should be a pulling apart from real life. Actually, worship should be the place where we bring all the issues of life before the presence of God, and we work them out and we wrestle them out with Him. And I hope that as we go through this tonight, you'll have a bigger understanding of worship, because it's much more than just like a little thing that we do at certain prescribed times. The fact is, what the Bible says, your chief problem is worship. Your chief problem is a worship problem. The reason that you're afraid, the reason that you can't rest, has everything to do with worship. And the way God is going to bring healing and deliverance into your life is through worship as well. So let's look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 30. Do you all have Bibles? Yeah? I meant to copy off some some of the passages. If you don't have a Bible, maybe we'll see if we can get some copies um, tomorrow. Does anybody not have a Bible? If, no, everybody's okay? If, if, maybe, yeah. If, don't be shy. Raise your hand, and maybe somebody that has one will let you borrow one. Or so, maybe, hopefully, somebody near you so that you can get them back to the right people. Yeah? Anybody help out? You could put it up there. Well, yeah, you could, I guess. I'll let him work on that. Do you have it in the, like, can you get the whole Bible there on your computer? Awesome. This is a um, passage about repentance and rest. And it's a fascinating thing. I, I, um, I don't know for, about you, but my upbringing, I, I wasn't really somebody who followed Jesus in a personal way probably till about ninth grade. I grew up in a church where we just didn't really talk about that as long as you went to church and you did the things you were supposed to do uh, during that hour that you were at church. That was enough to consider yourself a Christian. I remember ninth grade, the first time I ever heard the idea you could have a personal relationship with Jesus, completely weirded me out. Um, and then I began to hang around with, with a group of Christians that in some ways sort of made, sort of made this idea of repentance they, they really got me mixed up about it. But I'll get into that when we get here. Um, let's look at Isaiah chapter 30. This is an um, important passage about fear. And I, and I want you to think about this. What do you do with your fear? It's actually a very important, very revealing question. 
We're going to look tonight about how fear is a false, impotent substitute for the security that can be only found in the gospel. But more important than that, we're going to see how God comes to us in our fear to bring deep healing. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Woe to the obstinate children. That's a great cheerful start, isn't it? Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, to Egypt's shade for refuge. But Pharaoh's protection will be to your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Though they have officials in Zoan and their envoys have arrived in Hanes, everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them who bring neither help nor advantage but only shame and disgrace. An oracle concerning the animals of the Negev. Through a land of hardship and distress, of lions and lionesses, of adders and darting snakes, the envoys carry their riches on donkeys' banks, their treasures on the humps of camels, to that unprofitable nation, to Egypt, whose help is utterly useless. Therefore, I call her Rahab the do-nothing. Go now, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. And to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way, get off this path, and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. You ever been there? <laughs> Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says. Because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, and depended on deceit, this sin will become for you like a high wall, cracked and bulging, that collapses suddenly in an instant. It will break in pieces like pottery, shattered so mercilessly that among its pieces not a fragment will be found for taking coals from a hearth or scooping water out of a cistern. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. You said, we will ride off on swift horses, therefore your pursuers will be swift. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Yet, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. O people of Zion who live in Jerusalem, you will weep no more. How gracious He will be when you cry for help. As soon as He hears, He will answer you. Although the Lord gives you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teachers will be hidden no more. With your own eyes you will see them. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. Then you will defile your idols overlaid with silver and your images covered with cloth. You will throw them away like a menstrual cloth and say to them, Away with you. 
will also send you rain for the seed you sow in the ground and the food that comes from the land will be rich and plentiful. In that day your cattle will graze in broad meadows. The oxen and donkeys that work the soil will eat fodder and mash spread out with fork and shovel. In the day of great slaughter, when the towers fall, streams of water will flow on every high mountain and every lofty hill. The moon will shine like the sun, and the sunlight will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven full days, when the Lord binds up the bruises of His people and heals the wounds He afflicted. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and His tongue is a consuming fire. His breath is like a rushing torrent rising up to the neck. He shakes the nations in the sieve of destruction. He places in the jaws of the peoples a bit that leads them astray. And you will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people go up with flutes to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause men to hear His majestic voice and He will make them see His arm coming down with raging anger and consuming fire, with cloudburst, thunderstorm, and hail. The voice of the Lord will shatter Assyria and His scepter, He will strike them down. Every stroke the Lord lays on them with His punishing rod will be to the music of tambourines and harps as He fights them in battle with the blows of His arm. Topheth, has long been prepared. It has been made ready for the king. Its fire pit has been made deep and wide with an abundance of fire and wood. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of burning sulfur, sets it ablaze. Now, I know that's a long passage. Sometimes one of the challenges in preaching on the Old Testament is sometimes you feel like, well, I just I can't read that much Scripture. But I truly believe, and we believe in RUF, that the Lord's Word is alive and that he blesses even the reading of his holy word and then the other problem when you do the Old Testament you feel like I've got to explain every single image every single verse in there but not necessarily I I hope that you'll understand what this passage is about but we don't have time to go into every little detail but part of the thing is some of the imagery just needs to work on us even if it's not something that you can reduce to clear propositional sort of sort of boil it down. Now, let's pray together and then we'll we'll dig into this and we'll look at our fear and what the Lord does in response to our fear. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Isaiah. We thank you for this portion of your word in particular. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us about repentance and rest. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what I want to look at first are the marks that you're living in bondage to fear. Now, for some of you, I may not need to convince you. Maybe as soon as I mention the word, you realize, yeah, there's a lot of fear in my life. I fear this and I fear that. For others, maybe we're not so in touch with fear and the role that it plays in our life. And so Isaiah actually, uh, in this passage, gives us a number of ways to, to notice or to see fear and the way it works itself out in our lives. Now, one thing that would help you to understand is a little of the historical context. This is a period in Israel's history where Assyria, the superpower up here, up to the north, is on the move. And they're moving towards Israel. And they're flexing their muscle and they're taking people captive and they weren't nice people at all. 
One of the things that they like to do when they took you, when they came and they took over your country, is they would take you off into exile. And they had a particular uh, way that they like to do that. They would take these giant fish hooks and they would impale them through your mouth and they would take chains of captives off. These were not the kind of people you wanted coming into your neighborhood. But they're on the move. And Israel doesn't know what to do. God, through his prophets, is telling them, trust me, I am the warrior king. I can deliver you. But what Israel's leaders have decided to do instead is to put their hope in Egypt. And if you know anything about the sort of the history of God's people, Israel, Egypt is the last people you would expect God's people to be looking to for help. Egypt are the people that had enslaved God's people for 400 years. And God had delivered them in a miraculous way from Egypt. And now, when things look grim, where do they look? To God who had delivered them from Egypt? No, to Egypt. So, here's what I want you to see first. One of the first marks that we're living in bondage to fear is we turn not to God when things are difficult but we turn to our own resources first. What's going on in this passage is that Israel is negotiating with Egypt to take care of them. Now, you may say, well, they're trusting in Egypt. But in reality, what they're really trusting in is their ability to get Egypt to side with them. See, often, I think, sometimes we don't analyze our trust enough. We may think, for instance, uh, you know, I have a, a friend who um, one time was going to this counselor. He was going to a counselor and he was talking to this counselor and, and um, you know, saying, well, you know, I'm kind of a people pleaser and, you know, it really kind of, you know, creates some problems in my life. I can't say no to people and, um, you know, this and that. And the counselor's listening to him for a while and he goes, after a while, he goes, you know, why don't you're you're, you're very um, you're very comfortable throwing around that phrase people pleaser? Why why don't we define it or or describe it maybe a little more accurately? Would that be okay with you? Don't ever you know when a counselor asks you that kind of question, never say yes because <laughs> they're about to just whack you upside the head. He goes, why why don't we just call it what it is and say that you prostitute yourself to everybody you know? <laughs> Would that be all right? Because that's what you're doing. You may think your problem is people-pleasing. Your real problem is you're, you're basically giving everything you have to get people to like you, which is not really trusting in them as much as it is trusting in you and your ability to get them to like you. The problem with that, of course, is you can't really control them very well. And so the more you put your hope in your ability to get people to like you, the more and more insecure you become. We turn to ourselves and our own resources as our default, as our first reaction when we're living in bondage to fear. And we often do it quickly without thinking. Well, one of the, the things that's brought out in this passage is, um, uh, you know, here is Isaiah's coming to them, God's coming to them, say, hey, don't make an alliance with Egypt. You don't need to do that. But look at this in verse 4. They already have their officials already in the Egyptian court. You have officials and so on already. Your envoys are already there. The pack animals are already taking the money and we haven't even worked out the deal yet. 
You're in such a hurry to get is Egypt on your side. Like, you haven't even made the arrangement. Your envoys are there. Your officials are there working it out. But you've already sent your pack animals on the way with the tribute. When we're living in bondage to fear, not only do we turn to our own resources, but we tend to turn to them very quick and without thinking very much. Contrast that with, the, with, with what it means to live like a Christian. Christians are people, should be people, who connect the dots. And sometimes connecting the dots between your fear and the way you act and what you've forgotten about God takes some time to ponder. Now one of the things I'm going to try and get you to understand or help you to understand this weekend is the connection between idolatry, putting our trust in something other than God, and fear. And then what I want you hopefully to see is that the way God deals with it is not just by saying quit it. Stop worshiping the wrong things. Even more importantly than that, He actually does something useful <laughs> to us, which He reveals Himself as more beautiful and believable than any idol. That He reveals Himself as being the one that we're trying to get through our idolatry. But more on that, especially tomorrow night as we look at Isaiah chapter 44. So here's the thing. We tend to turn to ourselves. We tend to do it quickly and without thinking or inquiring of the Lord. And thus we often turn to things that don't really work. One of the themes in the Bible about misplaced trust and putting your trust in idols is that idols don't really have any power. And, and God says that here about Egypt. Rahab is another name for Egypt in the Bible. And, and so Egypt is called Rahab the do-nothing. Now this is actually helpful. One of the things that's helpful, though we don't like it very much, is when God exposes our idols as actually having no power whatsoever. It's often very painful when you find the things that you've been trusting in can't really help you. Because you tend to find that out when you feel like you really, really need them. And that's what God is saying here. Look, it's merciful of God to say, Rahab has no power. Now Israel should have known that because 10 years before this, and you can read about this back in chapter 20 of Isaiah if you want to, but about 10 years before this, Egypt had been part of a coalition that had formed together to stand against Assyria and it hadn't worked. They'd gotten wiped out. So why does Israel think that it's going to be any different this time? It's not going to be. Egypt has no power. The things that we put our hope in, other than Jesus, have no power. They have no power. Not only that, but how insane that God's people would turn to the very thing that God had delivered them from. And this shows us, guys, listen, this issue of growing more like Jesus is inescapably supernatural. Because without God breaking in, our hearts run back to the same things that don't work time and time and time again. Do you know the most powerful idols, the most powerful things you can trust in that you just can't seem to break away from are the things that work every once in a while? Because I think so much of idolatry is this hope, is, is hope that maybe... If I just tweak it a little. I know, that, I know that people let me down all the time. But that's because I haven't really figured out how to get everybody to like me. 
Maybe I haven't really done enough. I know that depending on grades as being the reason I matter, I know that that's let me down in the past. And when I don't get the grade I think I should get, that it just kills me. But I just need to work harder. I just need to try something different. I just need to take another tact. God is good to expose our idols and say, no, they don't work. Why do you keep going back and back to the things that God has delivered you from? But we do that all the time, which shows us that sin is insane. I know we tend to think of it as, um, as bad, as dirty, as all these sorts of things, but it's helpful to remember that sin is also insane. Uh, I, a guy that I, that I used to think a lot of who's passed away now, Jack Miller, said, you know, one of the things you have to get to be good at when you're a Christian is to just laugh at your sin. And you may think, well, that's kind of a strange thing. But no, you really do need to see not only is sin offensive to God, but it's ridiculous in the true, in the true sense of the word. We're going to look at this. We're going to see this a little bit more in, tomorrow night when we look at Isaiah 44. But Isaiah basically, you know, is this rich sarcasm where he's like, look, you, you sort of cut down a tree and then half of it you burn, um, make a fire and roast your food and the other half of it you make into a little idol and you bow down to it and worship it and say, save me, you're my God. How, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous picture. And yet the same is true for us. I had a grandmother... She's passed away now. But I, I remember how sad it was. This is a woman who was very capable. She was in you know, America's most influential women. She was vice president of a bank in an era when women didn't really do that sort of thing or advance to that sort of position. She was widowed early. But one of the things that was, was interesting, I, I love my grandmother dearly, but what broke my heart was to see how much she trusted in her ability to be capable. Do you know what happened? Is Alzheimer's came into her life. And not only was it a difficult, difficult thing, but even as it was even before it happened, because her grandmother her mother had died of Alzheimer's, like the last probably five, ten years of her life, even when she still had a lot of good years, she was prone to these anxiety attacks and panic attacks because the idea that she wouldn't be able to take care of things, she just didn't know what to do with it. She didn't know how. She didn't know how to do things any other way. And, 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 and this idle stuff, it's not just, oh, that's interesting, huh? This is the stuff that will kill you. Literally, maybe. We often return to the slaveries we've been delivered from. Right? Not only that, another sign that we're living in fear is we refuse to hear the truth. Look down at verse 8, 9, 10, 11. It goes through this whole little section. They're basically saying, Say to the seers, they say to the seers, See no more visions of the prophets. Tell us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. I know that sometimes, especially if you're good Christian people, you don't often say that to God. But man, I know we feel it a lot, don't we? <laughs> and especially when we're living in fear. We don't want to be confronted with the things of God. Because the things of God often call us to pursue a way of life that feels like death. 
I, I heard a guy tell, say one time, and I, I've pondered this for many years, and I think he's absolutely right, that, that the, the initial feel of living by faith usually feels like death. I don't know where people got this idea that the way to figure out God's will for your life is to pray and then hope for peace in your heart. And if you get peace in your heart, you know that's what you're supposed to do. I don't know where people got that idea. I really don't. Because Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane about whether it was God's will for him to go to the cross. And he had anything but peace in his heart. As a matter of fact, the Bible said that his sweat was like great drops of blood pouring down. Was it God's will for him to go to the cross? Absolutely. How do we know? The Bible says so. How did Jesus know? Because the Bible said so. Not because he had peace in his heart. The initial feel of living by faith usually feels like death. And if fear is driving you, the last thing you want is for somebody to tell you clearly, here's the way of God. I think what's, well, you know, we're so naive sometimes. I know I'm naive. Sometimes I think, if I just knew what God wanted me to do, I'd, I'd do it. Really? You know, students sometimes ask me, you know, how do I know what God's will for my life is? I say, well, you know, Paul told the Thessalonians, God's will is that you flee sexual immorality. When you got that down, come back. I'll give you some more. <laughs> right? I mean, why do we think that we just want more and more, or that we just have this assumption that all we really need to know is what, to, what needs to be done, and then we'll do it. I know why. It's because we're all meritocrats. We all think that the only thing I need to do, like the way I put it is, you know, with my students is, is it going to be on the test? The only thing that matters is, is it going to be on the test? So desperate to figure out, is it going to be on the test? And God says, look, it's not about figuring out what's on the test so you can make sure you get really good at that. It's about seeking first His kingdom. And you know, that requires heroic and imaginative obedience. And God's not going to boil it down to what's on the test so that you can trust in your ability to figure it out like you do everything else. Right? You need so much more than just to know what to do. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. David Jones, who's the ethics professor at Covenant Seminary, used to say, the real problem in the Christian life is not figuring out what to do. It's finding the courage to do it. The real problem in the Christian life is not figuring out what to do, but finding the courage to do it. Ultimately, when we put our trust in anything besides God, it leads to more fear. Fear drives us to put our trust in something besides God, and then it leads to more fear. And Isaiah has a, a really powerful picture of this. L look here, it's down in verse 15, in verse 16. Basically, God says, look, I mean, I love this. If the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, tells you something... We should pay attention to it. <laughs> and you would think that God's people would pay attention to the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, to what He says. And here's what He says. In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. You said, no, we will flee on horses, therefore you will flee. Egypt was known for their chariots. What He's saying is, basically, if you're going to put your hope in horses and their power 
here's what's going to happen. Your life is going to be filled with the irrational fear. Because that's verse 17. A thousand will flee at the threat of one. You will all flee away till you are left like a flagstaff, flagstaff on a mountaintop, like a banner on a hill. Here's the picture. If you put your hope in Egypt, your life is going to be filled with irrational fear. It's going to be like if you have an army of a thousand chariots and you see one Assyrian soldier, you're all going to run away. Now that's crazy. But here's the thing. When you put your hope in something besides God, it distorts reality for you. Reality gets twisted. And it just builds and builds and builds. The more you put your hope in something besides God, the more insecure you become because you know ultimately if you're putting your hope in something you're really putting your hope in yourself your hope in yourself and you know that you really just aren't up to it see here's the thing you know at this stage in your life a lot of y'all work jobs or at least summer jobs that you're really way overqualified for it, it kind of sucks doesn't it to, to go work a silly retail job or you know, my wife, you know, all the way through, through high school worked the, the, the uh, drive-through line at McDonald's. You know, she's a very capable, you know, woman was a nurse at Vanderbilt, you know, for years. But for years, you know, she went into this job that she could just do without even having to wake up. <laughs> and, and that's boring. But you know what? It's death to have to go to work every day and know that you can't possibly do what you're being asked to do. And if you're trying to be in control of your world, you've got to be dying. Because you weren't made for that, and you can't handle it. Oh, you may be able to, you know, pull all-nighters regularly, but listen, when you get to be 30, you won't be able to do that anymore. <laughs> I tell people, you know... It's fine now for you to stay up all night long and try to, you know, finish work because you're such perfectionists, and I am too. But one day you have to become morning people if you have kids. <laughs> it, it, there's, no, there's no avoiding it. Well, actually, I, I, I should take that back. My Kurdish neighbors, they don't put their kids to bed till midnight, and then the kids sleep till noon, you know. And then it comes sort of, the worlds come colliding together when they have to go to school because Davidson County schools in Nashville, Tennessee don't start at noon. <laughs> you know, and, but eventually, you know, when you put your hope, when you take on a job that you can't possibly do, it fills you with even more insecurity. And it's sort of this ultimate catch-22. You, 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 you put your trust in something besides God, it makes you more insecure, and then you just redouble your efforts. But what you need is to be delivered. And that's where this passage goes next. Because here's, you know, look at this. The whole gospel really, in a sense, is in that first word in verse 18. God say, look, you're putting your hope in, in, in something that Rahab to do nothing, and it's going to fill your life with irrational fear. What kind of irrational fears are in your life? I know sometimes we don't like to look at that. We like to just sort of run past that and just sort of not think about that very much. But let me just plead with you for a moment. Please take some time to ponder irrational fear in your life. 
if you have friends, ask them, do you see irrational fears in my life? Do you see overreaction in my life that might be a clue that I'm putting my trust in the wrong things? I had it actually a really, it's not humorous, but it's just such a fitting example of this happened to me today flying up here. You know, uh, do you guys fly Southwest very much? You know, you have to like check in, you know, 24 hours ahead of time to make sure you get, the, you know, in the first boarding group. Do you know, like Southwest, you don't get assigned seats on the plane. You basically have to like, you know, the sooner you get your check in, the sooner, the better number you get so that you can hopefully get it. When you got three kids, right, and you're trying to get on the plane, it's really a drag if you forget to check in like I did yesterday. <laughs> and so now you're like at the end of the B boarding group, which means basically there's, not much chance that by the time we get on the plane, we're going to be able to find seats where we can sit next to our kids. So I'm going to sit, you know, have my little six-year-old girl you know, sit next to people she doesn't know. This isn't going to happen. Very, it's hopefully not going to happen. All right. And it's really unbelievable how few people will move to accommodate you. It's really amazing to me. I used to love Southwest because they always let the families with little kids on first, and they quit doing that. I guess because the business travelers were pissed off by that. But anyway, so here's what, here's what happens today. We get on the plane, and I ask the stewardess at the front, any chance that we can find three seats together? And the steward at the front calls back to the stewardess that's at the very back and asks her, and she says, yeah, I've still got two rows here, and I'll hold them for you. And yeah, I could see her wave from the back, and it was over the income, so I could hear it, Okay. Well, right in front of me was a lady who I guess her flight had been delayed because I was like B60 or something. I was right at the end of the B group. She was A27, which meant she was in that first boarding group. By all rights, she should have gotten on the plane in plenty of time to get a really good seat. But her plane was delayed, and so she was late, and she was right before me. Okay, So she gets to the back. There's not a single seat where you can sit two people together except this row that the stewardess is holding for me and my kids. And this lady gets there and she starts going crazy that, this, that, this, that the flight attendant won't let her sit there. And she's going off and she, she keeps saying, but I'm 827. I'm 827. Don't you understand? I'm 827. I should be able to sit. I'm a paying customer. I said, it got so bad. It's that they had to escort her off the plane, and the police had to take her away. I mean, like Nashville isn't where she's from because she was late making her connection. But she was so consumed with the fact that she's A27, and she deserves to be able to get a good seat, that she lost all perspective. And now she's being taken away by the police. Are there places like that in your life? Can you think back about your life and be like, wow, I really overreacted. I can think that most every time I fight with my wife. Because there's fear going on underneath there. And the closer she gets to exposing my misplaced trust, the more desperate I become to keep her away. And I lash out, do anything I can to keep her from exposing my foolishness. Irrational fear is not something to just bemoan. It's something to ponder and to question and to ask, what is it telling you about where your trust is? Now, if you're irrational, like the last thing you can do is just sort of snap your fingers and get better. 
Sometimes we, we, my wife and I get into this argument all the time with our kids. Like they're freaking out over something. They just have lost all sense of perspective. And sometimes one or the other, usually one of us, will try to reason with them. But no, that's not going to work. You have to do something to break in and to get them to sort of like shake out of it and begin to get their bearings again. And that's what God does here. I mean, verse 18 comes like, whoa, wait a sec. I mean, I tell my students sometimes, really, it's, all, it's an amazing thing that there is a Genesis chapter 4. And Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter... That the Bible keeps going and keeps going and keeps going is a really remarkable thing. And we take it for granted because we're used to having the whole Bible. But when Adam and Eve said to God, we don't care what you say, we're going to do what we want to do, we're going to ally ourselves with Satan against you and against your kingdom and against your ways and against everything you're about. The thumb our nose at you, spit in your face... John Bunyan, the great Puritan who wrote um, Pilgrim's Progress, said sin is the rape of God's mercy, the jeer of his patience, and the dare of his justice. That's pretty bad. (laughs) That's pretty bad. But the story doesn't end there. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 5. Same with this. Your life is filled with irrational fear. God doesn't say, oh, oh, there, there, I'm so sorry for you. No, He says, you're obstinate children. You put your trust in the wrong things. And you've rejected Me. Yet, I long to be gracious to you. Isaiah says, the Lord rises to show you compassion. Alec Mortier, who's a commentator, a Hebrew Old Testament scholar, says that the picture here is of the Lord standing on His tiptoes. Do you, have you ever pictured God as standing on his tiptoes? He's so excited to bring healing and blessing into your life. No, we don't think that. Why? Because, because we think that we only get what we deserve. And maybe if we try really hard and we keep ourselves from doing all that really bad stuff, maybe God will reluctantly allow us to have a relationship with us. But to think that He'd actually be on His tiptoes, He's so excited to bless us and show us compassion, that's, that's just inconceivable. Unless the basis upon which God deals with us is not based upon what we do at all. The only way you can conceive of this Verse 18, following verse 17, is if God's basis for how He relates to us has nothing to do with the way we live and the things that we do or the things that we don't do. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for Him. The Lord says here that you need to rest and repent. Now the way Hebrew poetry works, it doesn't rhyme, even in the Hebrew, but it uses this sort of parallelism. So the way Hebrew poetry works, what what Isaiah is saying here is that repentance is rest. Quietness is strength. He's not saying See, I, you know, it's funny, like, you know, Belmont students, probably half the students at Belmont where I do RUF down in Nashville, uh, are there studying music or music business. And from time to time, the school will bring people in to, um, to tell them stories about how they got their start in the music business. 
And these poor students, every time they hear a different story, they just sort of add to their list of all the things they need to do. Well, now this person was working at, you know, at Waffle House and, you know, gave a demo tape to this producer. And next thing you know, you know, they, yeah. And then this person over here, well, they were interning at a record company for free for years. And then they finally got their break. And then this person over here, instead of hearing, wow, God is remarkably creative in the past that he has people on. They hear, no, I need to do this, 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 and this, 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 this. I need to do every one of these things. Right? They don't, they, so this is not saying you need to repent. Oh, and you need to rest. So, you know, make sure you spend, you know, 10 hours repenting. And then, you know, be sure you rest a lot too. Oh, and by the way, you need to have a time of quiet. And then you need to, you know, no, it's not saying that. It's saying all these are the same things. But here's the problem. Most of us don't think of repentance that way. Uh, Most of us think of repentance as the thing we do to try and get God to like us again. So many evangelical Christians think of repentance as anything but rest. Now, I know the cults say that, but unfortunately so did many Christians. What I mean by that is when I was... When I lived in Boston, the Boston church was a, was a big deal. I don't think it's as big a deal anymore as at the Boston Church of Christ. It's a culture group. They, when I was in college, they would bring buses to BU's freshman dorms and load up hundreds of students and take them to their, uh, to their meetings. And I had a lot of friends that got involved in that group. And when I moved down to Nashville, it was interesting, they had a Nashville church too. And I remember one of my students in RUF had gotten involved with that and was meeting with the chief or sort of the head woman discipler. And I heard about that and said, well, let me come to the meeting. Would that be okay? And my students said, yeah, sure, okay. So I went to the meeting and um, we started talking a little bit and they really pressed Acts 2.38, that you need to repent and then be baptized for your sins. Except they they understand that you repent is what you do in your own strength and then you get baptized and you better make sure you're baptized in their church, understanding just the right doctrine and it won't count. And then you get the Holy Spirit. And I said... You know, wow. You know, Peter in Acts 2.38 is talking to Jews. That's what I told this, this lady. And I said, do you think that maybe the Old Testament would give us any insight onto what he meant when he said repent and be baptized? She goes, yeah, of course. I said, well, let's look at Isaiah 30.15. In repentance and rest is your salvation. Now, when I hear you talk, I don't hear you saying that repentance is rest. Like, I hear you talk about repentance, I just want to die. <laughs> like, I can't, I can't imagine. I can't imagine trying to do that. Like, so thoroughly repenting of my sins and turning from my sins that it would qualify me to have God give me His Holy Spirit? Man, you could really, like, work a long, long time trying to, trying to make that happen. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. All right? And, she, and here's what she said. She goes, being a Christian is absolutely not about resting. I said, really? Don't you remember what Jesus said? Come unto me, all you who are heavy and weary laden, and I will give you rest. And at that point, my student said, turned to this woman and said, wait, you don't think being a Christian is, being a, is about rest? And she said, absolutely not. It floored me. But here's the thing, guys. You might get that answer right on a test, but how do you live? What does your heart say to you? Repentance is not saying, okay, God, you caught me. (laughs) 
Forgive me, because I promise I am never going to do this again. <laughs> That's the way we understand it. And the problem with that is there's no Jesus in that. There's no Jesus in that. Don't you dare go to God and say, forgive me based on my promise to do better. That may be wor that maybe works with your parents. Might work with some of your professors. Might work with an employer. It doesn't work with God. Why? Because God doesn't really take the word of liars very seriously. Like what you're basically doing is lying to God and hoping that he's going to not realize it. It's not a good plan. Repentance is turning from misplaced trust and collapsing upon Jesus. And God gives us everything we need for that. Now, I, I, I'm going to go quick on this because I'm going to say it more tomorrow. I'm going to hopefully sort of beat this into your head. Martin Luther used to say he had to beat this truth into people's heads because they would forget it. And I forget it, so I'm beating it into my head while I beat it into yours, all right? Here's the thing. What does God do to help them rest? And here's what he does. He reveals himself as the one they're trying to get through their idols. He reveals himself as the warrior king. You think you need someone to take care of you? You have me. The thing that you're trying to get from your idols, you already have in the gospel. Are you trying to get a future? A future that will be bright and hopeful? There's nothing you can do to guarantee that. Nothing. But in the gospel, you have it. The only way you're going to be able to let go of misplaced trust is if you remember what you already have. Or if you discover, because for some of you maybe it's not about remembering, maybe it's about discovering that what you're trying to get, whether it's hope or peace, security, satisfaction, all the things that we try to get from these idols, we already have. And so the call is to repent, to, to, to rest, to collapse on what we already have. Yeah. Now, I know that's so counterintuitive because it seems like, well, how do you do that? <laughs> and here's the thing. It's about faith. But God doesn't just ask you to sort of create faith in your own heart. Faith feeds on the promises of God. And the very character of God is promise. And so where God goes in this passage is he tells them what he's going to do. And he tells them who he is. And he reveals himself primarily as the warrior king. He reveals himself as the one who is both the king and the healer. Isn't that remarkable? Tolkien picked up on that, you know. You remember the Lord of the Rings? Aragorn is known by two things. He bears the sword that was once broken that's been reforged. He is going to put an end to evil. And he has the hands of a healer. What a beautiful picture. Because that's what you need. God is going to come and he is going to destroy the Assyrian army. The threat to them. But you know what, guys? That's just a warm-up. Because the biggest, the biggest threat to Israel is not really Assyria. See, here's the, great, here's the irony. As they're so filled with fear about what Assyria is going to do with them, they're completely clueless 
to the way that fear has hardened their hearts. And the, the real thing they should be afraid of is provoking their God to wash his hands of them. In other words, we may think that that's the real issue, but the, the real issue is the way the fear is dealing with our heart and making us run farther and farther and farther from God and his ways. There is a day coming when Assyria is going to be wiped out, Isaiah says, but that day is just a warm-up. Because there's a day coming when God's wrath is going to be poured out so fully and so furiously that God himself will cry out. That's what the cross is all about. It's a fascinating picture here. It talks about how God is going to bring judgment at the same time it's a party. Isn't that a weird picture? Judgment and party together. The destruction is going to happen with the tambourine and the singing. And there's an allusion in verse 29 to Passover. Passover is the festival that's being talked about there in verse 29. But again, Passover is just a warm-up for something that's coming that can only be described in terms that this, it's going to be like seven suns in its brightness. The picture Isaiah is trying to get us to say is, look... Let your imagine run, imagination run wild. The deliverance that God is going to do is going to be a deliverance that comes through judgment and results in a party like you can't believe. And that's what the cross is all about. So here's a couple concluding applications as we finish this. Remember. The first, the first thing is to remember. Fear and misplaced trust are inexorably linked Tim Keller said one time, I think this is a great way of putting it, that if you pull up your idols, the things you're trusting in, by the roots, you'll find your fears clinging to them. So remember who God is. Martin Luther said one time that before you break any of the Ten Commandments, before you lust, before you murder, before you covet, you first break the first commandment. You first make God into an idol. You first imagine him to be something less than he is. And then it makes all of your other sin seem so reasonable. Well, of course I have to take care of myself. God doesn't care or God doesn't have the power. Do you see? And so the Bible keeps calling us in dealing with our idolatry. God doesn't just say quit it. God says remember who I am and rejoice in who I am. Let it get into your heart. It's not even just enough to think it. You have to turn it into worship because it's got to get into your heart. Second, examine your fears. First is remember. The second is examine your fears. They're the key to discerning where your idols are. Don't ignore your fear. Ponder it. And ask yourself, what have I forgotten about the true God that makes this fear seem so reasonable? What makes your fear and your idolatry seem so reasonable? What have you forgotten about God? And here's the thing. The sooner you figure it out, the better you're going to be because your heart is going to keep running in those same channels in, in many ways probably for the rest of your life. At this point in your life, sort of your besetting sins, as the Puritans would say it, or the kinds of things that you tend to forget about God, you're going to forget those same kinds of things all the time. You may be even a way that you think about, you know, how could I find somebody to marry? What should I be looking for? I would say it's really helpful if you can find somebody that is able to encourage you to speak truth about who God is into the way, into the way that you tend to forget it. Find somebody that can do that. Consider, why does God reveal his, his love to them? 
and his commitment to them because they forget it. And what is it you've forgotten about God? And then rejoice. Because you see, really, the key to heart change is to see the Lord's beauty and mercy in such a way that it takes our breath away and we look at our idols and we say, what was I thinking? I love this in verse 22. Look at this. Ask the Lord to make this promise true in your life. Then you will defile your idols or scorn them. Overlaid with silver and your images covered with gold. They look pretty until you get a look at the true God. And it's His beauty. His beauty is the only thing that can drive out all these other things that seem so beautiful to us. I have a friend... Um, he's passed away now. Bill Lane was his name. And he used to always pray at the beginning of worship. I used to love this prayer. He would say, Lord Jesus, would you make yourself more believable and beautiful to us now? Do you understand that worship is spiritual warfare? It's not just about getting away. It's not just about enjoying ourselves. Oh, I hope it's all that. But it's so much bigger and more important than that. We're going to pick this up tomorrow. Let's pray together.